you can cut this out. I was going to say that just describes, like, much of our relationship. You're so grubby <laughs> and unimpressive. Welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter, and today we are discussing chapter two of The Silver Chair. This chapter is called Jill is Given a Task. Ooh. I am a silent bird in a silent forest, also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host. I'm thirsty. <laughs> Hello, May thirsty. I drink? Hello, Thirsty. I'm Dad. Uh, also known as Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi. Welcome. You didn't expect that one. I did not expect <laughs> that one. I also didn't expect you to, like, roll your eyes while you said it. I'm thirsty. Um, hey, Chris. Hi. How are you? I am well. Anyway. Continue introducing the podcast hello chris um so what are we uh how are you Good. i don't know we we've entered the banter phase that we've done so well on recently yep what okay un- unrelated mm-hmm. where's xanathar's guide to everything probably in the game closet why did you put it away yeah because they live in there no, they haven't lived in there in months. I don't want our books just scattered around the house. Yes, but I take them with me to Steve's every game. <laughs> okay. Did you take Tasha's cauldron this time? No, because oh. Steve has it and so does... I mean, I didn't. I don't need Xanathar's guide. I'm just used <laughs> to taking it with me. Okay. All right, anyway. So when we record this podcast, <laughs> the first thing we do is attempt to banter, but today we're digging that well dry, so... um. <laughs> Well, let's go ahead and move on to the second segment, which is where we summarize the chapter. And we do this by taking sentences from the chapter. Five, in fact. And retelling the chapter in its own words, mm-hmm. attempting to summarize it. Why don't you go ahead and go first? We always over-explain this segment. We've been doing that for 70 episodes now. Anyway, here's my summary. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty... Come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. She was almost between its front paws now, looking straight into its face. I lay on you this command, that you seek this lost prince until either you have found him and brought him to his father's house, or else died in the attempt, or else gone back to your own world. She had been setting her teeth and clenching her fists for a terrible blast of lion's breath, but the breath had really been so gentle that she had not even noticed the moment at which she left the earth. The first thing that she knew clearly was that she had alighted and was standing under a thicket of trees close by the riverside, and there, only a few feet away from her, was Scrub. There we go. I like yours. I feel like you did a better job of summing up the task that Jill is given, as the title suggests. Yeah. Uh, but you and I do have the same fourth and fifth sentence, so oh, cool. 
I will go ahead and read mine. Mm-hmm. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. Come here, said the lion. Repeat to me in order the four signs. She had been setting her teeth and clenching her fists for a terrible blast of lion's breath, but the breath had really been so gentle that she had not noticed the moment at which she left the earth. The first thing that she knew clearly was that she had alighted and was standing under a thicket of trees close by the riverside, and there, only a few feet away from her, was Scrub. There you go. So, Jill gets given a task. Yep. Uh, Man, this was... uh, I spent a lot of time summarizing this chapter because it was a boring chapter. Uh, (laughs) It's a boring chapter. Really easy to summarize. I spent a long time working on it. (laughs) Oh, it's 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 a boring chapter because, like, the entire chapter is a short conversation between jill and aslan and also three pages of them going back and forth about how thirsty jill is but doesn't want to approach the lion yeah like that just gets drawn out and drawn out into a very long and uh windy scene yeah it starts out right where the previous chapter left off with aslan or Mm -hmm. a lion at least the lion Mm -hmm. that had blown at eustace and stopping and walking away without looking at jill yeah and I find it very interesting that when, this is like the fourth time I've tried to record this, mm-hmm. because we had like three fire f- trucks go by. I find it very interesting that at this point, once once Aslan actually starts talking to her and gives her the task from the title, he says, you don't have a lot of time, like you're you need to hurry like once you once you get there you won't have much time uh-huh but like prior to that he walks away from jill leaving her there by the cliff edge after eustace fell and like lets her have her good cry cry until she's thirsty let her wander around sneakily tiptoeing cautiously stealing from tree to tree till she found the water and then lets her just stand there in terror of him next to the water mm-hmm. until she finally, like, is so thirsty she doesn't even know what to do, and he calls her forward. Uh-huh. If you're thirsty, you may drink. Like, I don't know. I feel I feel like there's an important part of that, because I know, I know, and you've told me that you feel like this makes Aslan a jerk, that he's like, yeah, you can take all this time to emotionally process and get thirsty and come express your need for water and I'm going to give you a task and tell you that you wasted time. Uh However, I think that it's uh, an important thing that Aslan made Jill come to him because we've seen the way that Aslan operated even with the Pevensies who knew him, Uh who as far as like the Pevensies have an opinion of it, had a relationship with him. Uh And... They had to trust Lucy and follow him before he, like, in in Prince Caspian. Yeah. They had to trust Lucy and follow Aslan uh-huh. when they couldn't see him before he would bring them to Caspian and to the aid of the Narnians. Yeah. And so, like... I feel like, I feel like this is no different from the way Aslan was represented in Prince Caspian. I don't know. I feel like he's presented 
in a very like aloof and distant way yeah and like there's a lot of stuff here that like i don't know makes him seem almost i don't want to say indifferent but just like this very like you know beyond the beyond the concerns of mortal men type god it's just like you know uh there's a couple lines in here like uh she knew at once it had seen her for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her like the aslan yeah. is just like laying there by the That's river <laughs> and looks over at her and just like you know who cares and then like he gets annoyed that she's just standing there and it's just like well if you're thirsty come and drink and she's like oh i'm scared etc cetera, etc cetera. and he says well you'll die of thirst then oh well and like very much like this he's not even trying to be remotely comforting it, jill's like will you promise not to hurt me if i come over and he's just like yeah i'm not making any promises like this very like yeah i don't care like i brought you here i could use somebody else who gives a crap about you like it's a very yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I, I guess, I guess you make your point well that he is kind of being a jerk. <laughs> yeah, and so it's it's an interesting way to present Aslan. Like, especially if this was like somebody's first exposure to Narnia, like if they were reading this book first for some dumb reason. Yeah, like that's a that's a weird way to introduce the character. Which I mean, I feel like <laughs> is fair to Jill's experience. This is Jill's first time in Narnia. This is Jill's first time meeting Aslan. Like. Yeah, if this was someone's first time reading this book, mm -hmm. this line does not seem like, I don't know, someone that she should trust, even though it says it never even crossed her mind to doubt him. Yeah. Also, he, he makes this very, like, boastful statement of being like... It, and it's not... He doesn't <laughs> say it as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were, were angry. He just said it. Mm-hmm. He says, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Which is like this very grandiose statement. But it's one that I feel like needs to be measured among the things that we've seen Aslan do in the book series. Which are none of those. We saw him kill the queen off, off page. Yes. He killed the, the witch. Yeah, we heard about it. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Um, he turned Rabidash into a donkey. Mm-hmm. Um, and he led a parade of people through, uh, Narnia. Uh-huh. It is, it, it's a statement that makes him sound like he's very involved in, like, you know, he is this thing to be feared, and, like, he's toppled kingdoms, and, like, but he, he is above everything else. He built yeah. and <clears throat> toppled Narnia. Uh-huh. With the Pevensies. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just feel like throughout the books, he does come off as a very hands-off type of, of character who's yeah. just like, I'm going to I'm gonna empower you to do things, and I'm going to bring you into it, and I have a task for you, but I'm not going to be there helping you along. Mm. Like, he even says that directly, like, later on in this chapter. He's like, we're what? talking now. When you get Clearly. down into Narnia, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> He's just outright. It's just like, nope. Once you get down there, you're on your own. Well, and I feel like that is a different element mm -hmm. that we can, can come back to. Mm -hmm. um, but, so, so what happens is we have Jill come to the river. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and Aslan invites her to drink, and she is terrified of him because he's a lion. This communion imagery, though. He does nothing to assure her of her safety. He just tells her that she's needs to come drink. And then she comes forward, drinks, and he talks to her. He says, come here. And she had to. That's the next sentence. She was almost between his front paws, like you said, staring straight into his face. And he asks her, where is the boy? Where is Eustace? He fell over the cliff, sir. And he asks why. And she has this moment of, like, confession where she says he was trying to stop me from falling and I was showing off. And he basically says, it's a very good answer, do so no more. This is very much like a go and sin no more kind of moment right now. Mm -hmm. Where, like, she has no idea who she's dealing with. And he's just like, good answer. Don't do that anymore. And But but also, lets her think that Eustace is dead, basically. And it's just like, where where is he? Well, he fell over the cliff. Why did that happen? And then yeah, it's only but after she, she also watched him blow. <sighs> yeah. She watched the lion blow mm-hmm. and watched Eustace's path change because of that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call him Scrub. Eustace's is just too hard to say. <laughs> she watched Scrub's falling path change. Uh-huh. So she knows that he did something. Uh-huh. She's still afraid. But then um, Aslan says that he has a task. And, and no, no, no. She, he's. Immediately, I was showing off, sir. That was a very good answer, human child. Do so no more. And now, the boy is safe. Yes. Like, he says that He says that almost immediately once they finally actually talk. Uh-huh. Because she was very, much more concerned about herself than, than Eustace. She watched him blow Eustace. She could have asked him where Eustace was or if he was okay. Uh-huh. Because she watched him have an active role in Eustace's falling, changing. Uh-huh. So, among other things. Anyway, he says, but your task will be the harder because of what you have done. And here we have the reveal that Aslan summoned them here that they didn't get here because they asked to. Yep. You can't make Aslan do anything. Nope. And she's really confused. Mm-hmm. And she's she's basically thinking, uh, you have the wrong person then. Yeah. Because we asked to get here. Apparently not. He and he says, you, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. Mm-hmm. Which they were calling to Aslan because they wanted to escape from bullies at school. Uh-huh. Which leads one to believe that in a certain set of circumstances, it could be translated that Aslan was causing the bullies to mm-hmm. make them unhappy so that they would then call to Aslan. Yeah. To... I don't like it. Uh-huh. I mean, that is a certain train of logic that one could follow. And I don't like it. That's I don't like it. Uh-huh. I mean, I know that they were just students at a school that was a bad school and they had a bad time. And it was Scrub's experience in Narnia that caused him to want to come back because of 
the experience he had with Aslan there. And it was that story that called to Jill wanting to go as well. So, yes, blah, 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 blah. But there is a certain logical train of thought you could follow that is just kind of bad. Yeah, a little bit. So... There you go. It's like this is the cop-out theology of, like, why is there suffering in the world, though? Because suffering exists because it teaches us to rely on God. Yeah, let's not get into a theology of suffering on this one. <laughs> anyway. But we could read the problem of pain and bring that. So Aslan sa- gives her the task that you summarized, in your, or that you included in your summary, and I just skipped right over. Uh-huh. The task to look for this Narnian prince. Mm-hmm. Somehow. A there's, lost prince. There's an aged king who's sad because his only heir was, was stolen somewhere. from him. Stolen. Wandered off somewhere. So this is a... He's both stolen and lost. Yes. So there you go. He's stolen and lost. Mm-hmm. Seems like this is a plot point that's happened before. Does it? Uh-huh. A little bit. How so? Well, in the horse and his boy. Really? Yes. We have... Uh, you know, the king of not Narnia at the time, but the, uh, the king of Arkenland. Yes. Who's a uh, male heir, who's not his only heir, but his eldest male heir is lost at sea down in the the wilds of Callerman. Yep. And, uh... It's true. You know, he has to find his way back in order to save the world or whatever. Yes, but in this one, we're not <laughs> following the boy with the horse. Yeah. In this one, we're following the people sent to get the boy that's lost. Yeah. And also, we don't know if he's a boy. Like, he he's talked about as a prince, the son of an aged king. Uh-huh. So we could assume that this is an older prince. Possibly. But this is basically the third plot line in the book series where there's a prince that's been lost. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, <laughs> you could argue that Prince Caspian was yeah. lost because he was lost from Miraz. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, see, at this point, it really starting to seem like Lewis is a one-trick pony with his uh, fantasy storylines. It's like, how can we create drama here? Well, there's a prince that's been lost somehow, and the, you know, in order he has the young man has to go and claim this kingdom and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, this is all wish fulfillment for Lewis. Yeah. Because... <laughs> so a little bit, a little bit, okay, a little bit. <laughs> We anyway. also have, we could even bring into this, this idea of princedom, prince, princedom? Princehood. Princehood. That the witch promised to Eustace that, or, that the witch promised to Edmund that caused him to betray his siblings to begin with. Yeah. Like, that he would be a prince under her. Yep. That promise of power. Yep. Anyway, in order to do this, uh, she's going to have to look out for four signs. Jill needs to follow these four signs. Do you, oh, know, quick, do you remember them? Um, without looking at my book. So first, uh, Eustace is going to encounter an old friend that he must greet immediately. Yes. And if he does that, they shall have good help. Yes. Then they must travel north to the, uh, the, uh, once great fallen city of the Frost Giants. The Ancient Giants. The Ancient Giants. There the ruined city of the Ancient Giants. There they're going to find a stone uh, some sort of ancient stone with a carving on it, and they have to do exactly what the carving says. And then, fourth, whenever they find the prince, they'll know him because he's the first person they encounter who will ask them to do something in Aslan's name. Wow. So. 
I've seen the movies. <laughs> I've read this book before. I couldn't remember what the tasks were. I knew the first one and the third one. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have remembered the second and fourth. So there you go. I would, I would do well in this adventure, apparently. So then she goes, yeah, I understand. And he goes, no, you don't. Repeat them. And she goes, um, well. And he goes, all right, we're going to correct you on that. Yeah, and makes her stand in front of a chalkboard and write the tasks down a hundred times until she knows uh, <laughs> no. exactly what they are. Anyway, so she went over this and he was very patient uh-huh. over and over and over. And then she finally asks, how am I to get to Narnia? Mm-hmm. And he says, on my breath, which is the same way that Eustace got there, apparently. Yes. This breath imagery, though. I will gotta... blow you into the west of the world as I blew Eustace. Mm-hmm. So we got to talk about the breath imagery. Do we? Um, so if we're going with, you know, what you had brought up the last time in the baseless speculation segment, that they are, in fact, in Aslan's country mm-hmm. and not in uh, the world proper, then it could stand to reason that, I don't want to say they're not alive. Ooh, okay. But they're they're in a place beyond the mortal coil. Okay. Like they're in the land of the dead or the land beyond. Okay. And so there's this imagery of like Aslan literally breathing them into life in the world. Yeah. Which is very like. And then we have in The Magician's mm. Nephew the imagery of Aslan singing uh-huh. into existence the stars and things within Narnia. Yes. And this idea of like a constant exhalation of breath being a, 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 a tool of creation. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm, that's fair. So that's the thing. But what if no? But what if Narnia is in a crater? Uh, sorry, <laughs> get into that. My base of speculation. So New then we have, <laughs> we've skipped over a line I used in my summary specifically because I wanted to address the imagery of it, uh-huh. where we mentioned um, that Jill stood as still as if she had been turned into stone. Wow! And we've used that image a few different times. Mm-hmm. And with that image, we go back to this idea of the witch turning people into stone and things like that. So, I know, I just felt like it was important enough to warrant mentioning mm-hmm. that, yeah, she has done this thing where she just stopped stock still and it was described as turning into stone. Yeah. That's I know, a thing. It's been used a couple of times. Lewis has got this recurring image of... Of turning people to stone. Yeah. But in this case, it was Aslan. Wow. And his very presence turned someone into stone. He's secretly a Medusa. Uh, not Medusa. Medusa was the name. It was, uh, I think they're called Gorgons. Gorgons. Anyway. <laughs> <sighs> Mixing my mythologies up. So anyway. Uh, and then she, you know... Aslan is like, yep, I'm going to blow you into Narnia. And then gives this kind of last little speech about how when she gets down there, the air is going to get thicker and it's going to confuse you because up here the air is clear and your mind is clear. But once you get down in there, the air is going to thicken up and you have to be careful not to like lose yourself in it, which I thought was interesting. It's like, it's almost has this ne- uh, there's almost this negative connotation here. Yeah. What especially when like they're this going this kind of idea of separation from Yeah, and like the you know, they're going to this land of Narnia where like the you know, 
Aslan is the steward of and walks among, and like he's the creation, the the creator of this place. Yeah, but but I he's mean, like it yeah, says when you get here on the there. mountain. I've spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Yeah, and that's true of our experiences with Aslan thus far. Like it isn't often that he does speak clearly. Yeah, even in the last one, three people from Earth came to Narnia, and until the last page of the book. Mm-hmm. Only two of them got to see Aslan at all. Edmund didn't even see him until he was a lamb barbecuing on the beach. Like, <laughs> sorry, it's, it's a funny mental image the way you uh, phrase that. Yep, just pictured a lamb in like a little uh, kiss the cook apron standing over <laughs> a grill. Yeah, like holding up a weenie, looking at it, and you know, seeing how done it is. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yes. So he gives this last speech. And he and he's basically like, remember the signs, all's not gonna be as it appears. They're gonna be hard to recognize. Yes. And so I really got to thinking like and I'll get into a little, a little bit of this in the uh, and I mean a lot of bit into this and my baseless speculation as to how what he said are the signs can be misinterpreted and how they could be something different because they seem real straightforward mm-hmm. for the most part. It's like you're gonna go to an ancient city. And find a big rock and you have to do what the rock says that's carved on it like i don't i'm yeah. struggling to think of how that could be something else or interpreted differently you know like don't don't strike the bell with the hammer yeah and then you'll find somebody and he's I mean, the first some enchanted things are gonna probably happen yeah and he's like the the first person that asks you to do something in my name like how, how is there a different way to interpret that yeah so we'll see, I guess. Yeah. And I'm going to be really disappointed if there's no real payoff there. And they're all exactly as they seem on the surface. Anyway, I have hope. There you go. Have Always hope. Hope, uh, have a little bit of hope that Lewis will do something here. Uh, anyway, she gets blown off the cliff. and it's Much not... more gently than she expected. Yeah. She gets to sleep. She gets some sleep. Yeah, she. she this is a long journey, apparently. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it is... I thought it was really amusing. Some hours that, like, later, I've been asleep. That, like, Fancy sleeping on air. That like you've been given a task by God, and God's going to send you out into the world to do something, to, like to do a mission. Like you've brought, He's brought you into another universe to do something, <laughs> and He's just like, "All right, I'm going to send you out into this place." But basically, you're flying coach. Like get comfy. It's an eight-hour flight. <laughs> yep. <sighs> As if like that is that is all that Aslan has the power to do. He's like, I. If I could get you there faster, I would. Times of the essence, but, you know, airline miles. What are you going to do about them? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she needed to sleep before this could be something she could actually deal with. Maybe. Like, I, I did think it was funny how long of a flight this was. Yeah, and how <laughs> much detail went into it. Uh-huh. Where, like, she goes through a cloud and she gets wet and she gets closer to the water and suddenly can she can hear the water. All of a sudden, there's noise. It's seagulls. There's birds. Do you remember? There's new birds. New and birds. So she heard the points up in the mountain. <laughs> she heard the birds up in the mountain, and now, like, she's... Oh, and, and we talk about what clothes she had on, because it had been a Monday day, and then there was noise, and there was seagulls, and the smell of the sea. Do you remember? Uh-huh. Um, but, we, it, but if she had ever been in a balloon... She might have experienced this <laughs> kind of sensation before uh-huh this was better though 
Because she was going along with the breath, so there wasn't any wind around her. Yeah. So she starts going lower and lower and coming in over the sea, and she's coming into Narnia pretty much, it seems like the exact same way that they left Narnia in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah. Because she comes in over the islands that Eustace has landed on. Yeah, some some of. of which she would be very jealous if she had known that Eustace had been on them. Yeah. So, yes, I, I'm sure at this point we can assume that there actually were in Aslan's country. Okay. <laughs> because they're in a giant mountain beyond the sea, like, yeah, sure. Okay. okay. Cool. This makes sense. Okay. That's where they were. Yep. Quiet place. Sure. Anyway. It was full of music when they got there. It was quiet after she started crying. Yep. Anywho. So she gets closer, she sees bays and headlands and woods, and she comes down and sees a river and starts moving up the river and gets deposited under a thicket of trees. Not after, uh, not not before getting soaked. Yes. Uh, she gets soaked first, and then, but she sees an enormous castle. Crowd. Crowd, there's battlements, there's banners fluttering in the wind, there's gay clothes and armor, gold swords, a sound of music. A green there's lawn. Some, there's some sort of celebration. A ship so brightly colored that it looked like an enormous piece of jewelry. Yeah, the ship at the mouth of the river. I'm assuming we're going to Caraparavel. We don't know that yet. but Possible. Uh, the rebuilt Caraparavel, possibly. I don't know. Yeah. Um, we still don't know what era we're in. And then <clears> she lands and we both have our last sentence that she sees Scrub. Yep. But what was the first thing that she thought? Uh, he was very grubby and untidy and generally unimpressive. The second thought was how wet I am. Yep. So she got soaked uh-huh. and found Eustace. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's the end of the chapter. Yep. But uh, there's the chapter. Anything we didn't cover or I think we're good? Uh, I mean, honestly, I didn't even, I had like two notes on this chapter. <laughs> I underlined Aslan saying, remember, remember, remember. Mm-hmm. And then the, the word seagulls. And then the word the the sea or whatever, like she smelled the sea, and yeah. I was just like, "Remember? Yeah. Do you remember the seagulls?" Oh, also, when she wakes up, she realizes, "Oh, I should repeat the signs to myself." Mm-hmm. So it'd be real crazy if, like, the task that Aslan gave Jill was like to blow up Parliament. <laughs> it's like remember, remember the fifth of <laughs> yeah. Anywho, so shall we go into our? Uh, Rewrites, then, if we're done discussing the chapter. Sure. How do we do this? Thank you so much for asking, Chris. <laughs> the next part is where we do our rewrites, also known as Narnia Chopped and Screwed, or the Narnia Fusion Buffet. And this is where we go through the chapter and pluck out five sentences out of context and try to write a new story with them. We rewrite the story. That we do. That and we do. And this frequently gives us some kind of underlying, like, sense of the chapter that we didn't really pick up on or discuss. Like, sometimes it's really creepy, or sometimes it's really silly, or sometimes it's really romantic, or something where it's like, that wasn't in the chapter. Yeah, it was. All of those sentences were in the chapter. So. Mine doesn't do that this time, I promise. But. Okay. Well, you did your summary first, so I'll go ahead and do my rewrite first. Go for it. She had been lying face down. She had been lying face downward, and now she sat up. I'll wake up in a moment. But it wasn't, and she didn't. The birds had ceased singing, and there was perfect silence. 
except for one small persistent sound which seemed to come from a good distance away. The lion answered The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Okay. So just like taking the dialogue out and yeah, giving it a I don't know, it's a vibe there. Yeah. You're going for atmosphere. Yeah, a little bit. I don't know. I struggled with that one. Yeah. I was struggling with it too. This is a hard one to rewrite for me. Yeah, because I just ended up... Because there was no really like... What I usually do for my rewrites is I pick like, you know, a sentence that sounds really funny out of context or like sounds interesting or like is a sentence that stands out from the rest of the chapter Mm -hmm. and come up with an idea surrounding that and then find support sentences for how to turn that into a story. Yeah. And I, I didn't really have any that I fell in love with here. But I, so I tried to do something experimental and really different with it, and I didn't think it, I don't think it turned out badly. But here is my uh, rewrite. Okay. <clears throat> if you're thirsty, you may drink. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. Where is the boy? Nothing else matters. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> So what was your experiment? What was your approach? Uh, instead of like just writing a story being like, this is just, you know, instructional or this is addressing the reader. Yeah, I like it. And that kind of thing. I so. like the use of the sentence to take care that it doesn't confuse your mind. Uh-huh. I like that. I don't know. It felt very much like a very, uh, it felt like a. I was going for like a memento vibe. It felt like an interrogation. Okay. Like it felt like a questioning. Mm-hmm. Like you're gonna take you're gonna take this and you're gonna you're gonna get fuzzy and I'm gonna ask you questions because this is very important. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a thought. Cool. There you go. So, Chris, the next section that we do is your baseless speculation. It is. Where you, as someone who has never read this book before. I've never read this book. And, and I knows virtually nothing about this I book. Don't, I don't know any spoilers. You don't know don't any know, spoilers I don't, yet? I don't know it about if anybody turns into a dragon or anything like that. Nothing. I literally know nothing about you this book. You literally know nothing about yes. this book. I'm going to tell the readers that he doesn't even know that there's a character in this book named Puddleglum. The, there is a chapter title called that, so I was assuming it was a character. Oh, okay. I did read the chapter titles. Okay, you read the chapter titles. Yeah. Well, he read the chapter fi- <laughs> titles, folks. Yep, that's what I know. Okay, so I've got one main direction to go with this. First of off, I want to say, what if we're in a crater? Okay, so the last time we talked about the idea of us getting into, like coming into the world in Aslan's country and getting blown down into Narnia. Yeah, because you talked about in the previous book, you talked about how you're 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 theorizing that Aslan's country is on the inside of a Dyson sphere, and that Narnia is a plane within that. Yes, which doesn't I think, make sense. Which I it, it makes some sense, sense, but, but it I think it makes I makes less sense than the Narnia crater theory. Okay, um, which I love personally. I like I th- where we went with it in the car when we were talking about. Yes. Go ahead and start, and I'll 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 pop in anything you'll, you forget. You'll jump in. So the idea that the entire world of Narnia exists within a giant crater on some sort of other planetoid. Yes. Uh, 
solves all of our problems. Like this would explain why everybody thinks it's flat because uh, you know the very few people that have come to the edge, long you know, have seen this like distant, far off country of like you know, oh hey, maybe there's an ocean that's off. That's I don't know where the ocean goes. That's kind of my main issue here, my main flaw in my theory because I don't know where the ocean goes. Yeah, into some impossibly deep ravine, whatever its magic. Uh, but there's so little account from the edge of the world that, like, if this were, like, the flat plane of a crater, it would make sense. Like, yeah, you wouldn't see the curvature. Like, it, you know, it's it could be a thing. And then we started talking about the idea of, oh, hey, was there a significance to this and, and what could have made this crater? We already have established the idea of the stars falling uh, into islands to rest and et cetera, et cetera. And this is a thing what? that happens. And so what created Narnia? Who created Narnia? The person it who was, sang it into being. It was Aslan. Was it Aslan falling? Was it Aslan falling? From his country? That he very literally fall into this. And this is the world that Diggory and Polly find themselves into. Like this is immediately post fall where it's just this giant plane of destruction and nothingness and darkness and Aslan's task, as it were, is to recreate this into something beautiful. Like Ramondu had a task. Like Ramondu. But Aslan's Not Ramondu. Karayakin. Karayakin. Well, maybe Ramondu had a task as well. We don't know that. Yeah, but he hadn't fallen. Yeah. He had just aged out of the program mm-hmm. and was de-aging. Yes. And not to say that, oh, hey, there's, there's a conspiracy that Aslan committed some great sin and this is his punishment, but maybe he did. Uh... But this, Maybe. but this could be uh, this could be Aslan's task. Maybe the the stars falling in. Uh, Maybe him sacrificing himself for use for. Maybe him sacrificing himself for Edmund was he, what allowed him to get back into his own country. Yeah. And that was his his task. He had to establish Narnia with the get the four kings and queens onto the thrones to fulfill mm-hmm. that prophecy in order to be able to go back yep. into the country. And now he's left stewarding it from the sky. Possibly. I do think it's interesting. It is an interesting I, theory. I, I think it has some merit. Uh, anyway, that's not where I wanted to go with my baseless speculation for this chapter. So I did a lot of thinking about what the signs could be, uh, misconstrued as or like how they could be uh something different than what they appear and i really got to thinking about the first one is that eustace has to go and greet an old friend immediately and they'll have help and then jill asked the very pertinent question of if he sees somebody he knows why wouldn't he go and greet them Mm -hmm. and that that got the wheels of spinning yes and i was also trying to figure out what timeline this happens in because it does say Eustace will see an old friend. And like, despite the, the fact that there are some long lived creatures in Narnia, this does give us a pretty hard limit on when the time could be. Yes. Um, so, you know, the, this almost has to be within several decades of them going on the Dawn Treader. Mm-hmm. If he's seeing somebody from back then, then he knows. Mm-hmm. Unless. And this is my first unless here. Unless what if he doesn't meet an old friend, but sees an old friend in a very literal sense? What if there's a statue? And he has to of, go greet it? 
of Caspian or somebody that he knows? Mm-hmm. What if there's a piece of artwork? Perhaps. Like, what if it's not an old friend and he has to acknowledge the fact that he knows who this image is of? Yeah. And then somebody recognizes that fact. Yeah. So that could p- throw our timeline into Anything. into wherever. And then I thought, I really want Lewis to tell a recursive story. In that, I kind of want Eustace and Jill to be thrown back in time from our perspective and take part in events that we know have already happened, but they get a different perspective on. Okay. So you want this to be like, he meets King Peter as he's on his way to the Giant Wars. Yes. Okay. Because we never really explore what happens, you know, in the intervening decades that, you know, Peter and Edmund lose. The Pevensies are on the thrones and they're ruling Narnia. Like, they're there for, like, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And other than, like, oh, hey, they fought in this battle and they were good kings and they burned down all the schools, we never really establish um, what they do. But I did get to thinking that there is a whole subplot in Horse and His Boy where Queen Susan was going down to Callerman, you know, fancying herself a suitor. And, like, they had all these suitors. Like, you know, she had all these suitors that wanted to marry her and et cetera, et cetera. And I remember there being something about it seeming odd that she hadn't taken a husband. Yeah. Like, at her age, et cetera, et cetera. And we never really get into what might be the marital status of anybody else. Mm-hmm. Okay. What if Peter was married? What if he was? What if he had a son? Fascinating idea. What if his son gets enchanted and gets lost? And Peter never knows or recovers that. I feel like that would have come up in one of the other books, though, because I feel like he would have been like, oh, this Prince Caspian, is he descendant from my son? And then find out that he's Telmarine. Yeah. But... It's a fair, it's a fair theory. Uh-huh. And so what if that's the, you know, what if that's the mystery? What if that's the, the thing is to, you know, it's to not how it appears. To go find Peter's son. To go find his cousin's son. Uh-huh. And that's like, hey, this is like the, there's a word I'm trying to think of for like a, you know, something gets turned on its head or whatever. Yeah. But this is the twist. The twist? Where Eusis goes and meets an old friend. It's a friend who is older. Yeah. Like maybe he goes and meets Peter toward the end of their time in Narnia. Hmm. Because they are at Care Paravel, like it's the glory days of Care Paravel. Maybe. It might be. We'll so. see. Okay. I don't know. So that's 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 what I'm working with. Fascinating. I I don't think we're gonna go there because I don't think the book is gonna be that good. <laughs> what would it completely revitalize my respect for lewis if that's where it went yes all but right. all right. we'll see that's what i got i see mm-hmm. okay i like it i like it thank you all righty so what do we do after that uh we close out the podcast all right well thank you all so much for joining us today as we discussed chapter two of the silver chair Join us next week as we discuss chapter three, which is titled The Sailing of the King. Which king? Who knows, but probably the king whose son we're going to go look for. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, if you want to 
throw some thoughts at us about our speculation or Aslan's role in Narnia. You can do that at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or at Chronically Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com with your fan art of the inside of a cloud. <laughs> and you can support us on the Patreon if you're cool like that and help us pay our monthly hosting fee at patreon.com slash chronicallypodcast where you get absolutely nothing in return. I just pictured somebody mailing us a wet piece of paper. <laughs> just... We needed. We would need a PO box for that. Yeah. Just mail us a wet piece of paper. I, know. I feel like Nathan is just going to hand us a wet piece of paper the next time we see him. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, uh, always dress for a muddy day when you go to Narnia. And if you're given a task to go into Narnia by basically God Himself, uh, maybe ask if you can fly first class. Thanks. Bye. Bye. There's new birds, new birds. She heard the points up in the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) This is a test of the audio podcast system. (laughs) This is a test. I don't like it. This idea of princedom, prince, princedom, princehood, princehood. I'm going to call him Scrub. Eustace is is just too hard to say. (laughs) And it was Eustace's experience. Did it again. Hello, and welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host taps on his phone and makes noise while I try to record. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Thirsty. I'm dead. Uh.